Uh, I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn to Acts 18, if you would, Acts 18, and we're going to start reading. I'm going to read from verses 18 through 28. This is the way we begin, oh, 90% of the time. Uh, The passage is never a surprise. When I was um, in seminary, Chuck Swindoll would preach occasionally in chapel, and he would uh, start by talking, and then he would say, just very gently throw this out, my Bible is open too, and then he'd tell us, and we know where to go then, but... If last week we ended in Acts 18.17, it's pretty sure we're going to start this week in Acts 18.18. So without surprise, here we are in this section of God's Word. And I'm going to read from Acts 18.18 to Acts uh, 18.28. So follow along in your copy of God's Word as I read. Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sisters and sailed for Syria accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Sencri because of a vow he had taken. They arrived at Ephesus where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to spend more time with them, he declined. But as he left, he promised, I will come back if it is God's will. Then he set sail from Ephesus. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up to Jerusalem and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from there and traveled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all his disciples. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor. And he taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers and sisters encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. When he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed. For he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. I want you to think with me for a minute about the difference between a bag of grapes and a bag of marbles. Uh, This image is not original to me. I read it several years ago. I can't remember where. I've seen it several different places. But what is the difference between a bag of marbles and a bag of grapes? Well, there's some obvious differences, right? One is edible, and one is a great toy. And you probably have children that have confused the two, right? Um, What happens, though, to those marbles and those grapes when you put them in a bag and uh, you you shake them a little bit? Well, the marbles will make a very cool chink, 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 chink sound, and they'll hit one another and they'll move in that bag. What happens if you shake a bag of grapes? Um, You're going to get juice. They, They squish and squash one another. They lose something, but together those grapes shaken up maybe squeezed a little bit, are going to produce sweet and delicious juice. Now, that observation leads to a question. Is the church supposed to be more like a bag of marbles or a bag of grapes? Well, uh, you already know. I, I, I have an answer in mind. Right? Uh, we're supposed to be like the bag of grapes. In fact, I'm not sure you can uh, apply what the New Testament says or live out our church covenant without that thought in mind. 
Do we come just on Sunday morning and bang into each other and make a pleasant sound with one another and leave pretty unchanged? Or do we come weekly with one another to produce, to to get squeezed a little bit and to produce from our lives refreshing juice? That juice that we're supposed to produce of this uh, sweet juice of joy and purpose and, and brightness for the glory of Christ and holiness. Now, I just read a passage of Scripture that contains two different scenes. And what's unique about these scenes is a couple things. They are related to one another and that they both have to do with the city of Ephesus. Uh, the first scene here is the end of Paul's second ministry journey and the beginning of his third, and Ephesus plays a role in both of those. The second scene is about Apollos coming to Ephesus, so that city is important. But the second thing that they have in common is they describe for us how a healthy church grows. And its main focus is how we interact with one another, how we know one another, how we together, and here's a cute phrase that I'm going to use several times, how we together produce the juice. That's a little cutesy, isn't it? Well, that's what we're going to do. What sets the condition for a church to thrive, for a church to produce the juice? Um, Pulling these uh, things together from the text is going to help us learn something, I think, a little bit about the stories in the Bible, the long story books in the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Samuel, Kings, uh, Esther, Ruth. Matthew, Mark, Luke. Um, these narratives are not just because they're n- just because the Bible wants to have cute stories for children. That's not actually what they're there for. And they have a unique nature, especially these longer books like Acts. They're a little bit reading them is a little bit like riding a carousel. My carousel days are behind me for a little bit. Um, eight or nine years ago, though, that was a favorite ride in our family. Now they drag me on terrifying roller coasters that go 100 miles an hour and turn you over 15 times. But, but it used to be we would go to Dutch Wonderland and we would run to the carousel. And for a number of years, uh, some of us would run, some of us would waddle, and some of us would be pushed in a stroller. And we'd make it to the uh, carousel, and uh, somebody would go in, one of the parents would go in, to the carousel, and the other would stand outside with the stroller and the, and the baby. So imagine here, I go out, I, I take Claire and Jenna, we go into the uh, carousel, Kathy, and uh, we'll put Luke in the stroller here, hey, wait for us. And we get on a horse, we pick our favorite color, and we get on the horse, and uh, we, we, we wait for the ride to start. And the ride starts, and it goes around in a circle. And inevitably, of course, because we're little children and we're having a great time, as we pass where Mommy is outside, I say, wave to Mommy! We go around. We go around again. Wave to mommy! And around again. Wave to mommy! There she is again! Let's keep going. Wave to mommy! All the way around, 45 times. My poor wife is standing outside going... <laughs> you know, just, here we go. All the way around. Uh, now, I notice as, as we're riding the, the um, carousel, there's things that happen. You know, there's the gentle up and down motion of the rocking of the horse. It's wonderful. There's the, the upbeat music that is, uh, adds to the, the happiness. There's the wind blowing through your hair, somebody's hair. And it's just, just a pleasant ride. Wave to mommy, wave to mommy, wave to mommy. I also notice as you go around here that, that there's things I noticed about where she was Every time we passed her, I noticed how close she was standing to the exit. 
so I knew how hard it was going to be to find her when it was over. I noticed where she was standing, how she was standing, who was standing near her, what oriented, how she was oriented to the stroller. I noticed that as we keep going around and around and around and around. Well, biblical narratives work a little bit like that. Um, there you are as you read the story, enjoying the breeze of the character development and, and the motion of the plot and the music of the conflicts and resolution. And there's some repetitiveness, though. There's some revisiting of common themes. And each time you see them, you learn new things. You notice something different, some development. Think with me for just a minute about the issue of how the Bible's stories treat the issue of infertility. Think about that. Now, infertility in the Old Testament, of course, is a special issue in particular because God has promised the, the Eve that there's going to be a child born from her who is going to be the deliverer. And as the promise narrows, it goes to Abraham. Abraham, you're going to be the father of this child. So there's, there's certain promises of God that are wrapped up in the issue of infertility. But think, how often does it come up in the text, doesn't it? A lot. The book of Genesis, Abraham and Sarah are infertile. What do they do? Huh. They, they, they plot that scheme with Hagar. It's a disaster. Abraham's son Isaac is, and his wife Rebecca are facing infertility. So what do they do? Oh, it works out better this time. Isaac prays, and God grants them twin boys. Good. Next, what happens? Jacob and Rachel are infertile. All this within a few chapters. There it is again. There it is again. There it is again. What did Jacob and Rachel do? Well, uh, Rachel and her Sister Leah have a baby-making contest, which is equally disastrous. Every time the, the carousel goes around to that issue, we learn something new. We actually learn about Abraham and Sarah and their battle with doubt or their, their, the, how this family faces idolatry or the self-righteousness, the distrust in God that characterizes us all. Well, here we are in this carousel, again, of Acts 18, and we see, about, see here how God's people are going about the mission of, uh, that Jesus gave them right at the beginning, the mission to testify him about him around the world. And what's the main strategy that they use? Planting churches. That's what they're after. And how does, this passage helps us again answer this question, how does a church produce the Jews? How does a church grow and thrive as we think about a church that fulfills this mission that Jesus gave us? Well, I want to surface four things from this passage. Doubtless there are more in the New Testament, but in this passage, I think the emphasis is on four things, and that's what I want to show you. So how does a church produce the juice? Number one, they have leaders with vibrant spiritual lives. Leaders with vibrant spiritual lives. Now, the first scene here in this passage is something of a travel log. It happens every now in the book of Acts. It describes, it basically describes how Paul, how did Paul get from Corinth to Ephesus to Jerusalem and then back out on his third missionary journey. Because it's a travel log, oh, it's a great time for us again to turn to our maps at the back of our Bibles. I hope you have one. Uh, if you don't have a map at the back of your Bible, or if you're using the Pew Bible right now to shame of us, there's no maps in the back of those Bibles, but your Bible might be good enough to have one, and uh, it would be good for you to turn there. If you don't have a map with Bibles handy, though, I, 
uh, graciously here, printed one out on the back of the sheet. So you can look on the back of the sheet if you want to. That's in your bulletin. So let's um, trace here this missionary journey that Paul has been on. Remember, all of them start on the right side of the map in the city of Antioch. In the, the bulletin insert, there's a star there where Antioch is. Now remember, this is the second missionary journey. The first one started in Antioch again, and Paul went with Barnabas. Acts 13, they were praying and fasting. The church was. The Holy Spirit set aside Paul and Barnabas for the work. And in the first missionary journey, if you have a Bible that's labeled Paul missionary's, Paul's missionary journeys, you can trace that. They start at Antioch. They go down to Cyprus. They go up to uh, Phrygia, Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Derbe. That's the first missionary journey. The region of Galatia is where they go, and Paul's letter to the Galatians was to the churches in those regions. That was the first one. Now, in the second one, which the line we can trace, and we have been talking about, also starts in Antioch, but Paul doesn't go to Cyprus. Instead, he goes north to Tarsus, his hometown. He visits again Derby, Lystra, Iconium, Antioch. And then there's that weird period of time that we talked about I'm not sure how it's shown. In, in the map here that I'm looking at, it's just a nice straight line from Antioch in, the, in uh, Turkey, modern-day Turkey, over to Troas. It's a nice straight line. I doubt that's the way Paul traveled. I, I don't think that's true because the text tells us that Paul wanted to go into Asia, but the Holy Spirit wouldn't let him. And then Paul tried to go north into Bithynia and Pontus, and the Spirit of Jesus said no, so he ended up at Troas. While we're looking at this, do you, remember, do you see, maybe you see up at the top of your map, it says Bithynia and Pontus. It labels that area. Remember Aquila, we're going to talk to about him in a few minutes, is from Pontus. So that's Aquila's home, home region. Well, Paul ends up in Troas, second missionary journey, and he has a vision uh, of a Macedonian man come over and help us. He goes over the sea there, the Aegean Sea, to Neapolis, Philippi, Amphipolis, Apollonia, we talked about him in Thessalonica and in Berea, and then he goes down to Athens, over to Corinth, and that's where we pick up in the text. He's in Corinth. Well, he goes to Sencre, which is a port city, and then over to Ephesus. Ephesus, um, one of the largest cities in the ancient world, 100,000 people, very important port, very important city. And what's interesting, when he goes to Ephesus... <laughs> Paul always did this, right? I, 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 he went into the synagogue and he met with the Jews there and God-fearing Gentiles, Gentiles to prove to them from the scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah. This is what he always did. What's interesting is that they asked him to stay, didn't they? We, we read that in the text. They said, would you please stay with us a long time? Which must have been an unusual experience for the Apostle Paul because Paul was kicked out of some of the best synagogues in the whole world. Right. He was never invited to stay. Nobody, none of the Jews in the synagogue ever wanted to hear from him. So he has this open door. What a wonderful opportunity. There's somebody who wants to hear what I have to say. And uh, he says no. He says no, and he says, um, I, I'm going home. I'm going to go back to Antioch. And you can trace the line there. He probably made some stops along the way. He went to Caesarea then to Jerusalem, and then back down to Antioch. Now, actually, the text continues. You notice that the third missionary journey begins right in there. It begins at verse 23. After spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from there and traveled from place to place back up to Galatia and Phrygia. So that's the beginning of the third missionary journey is in the text that we were reading. 
My question, though, is why didn't he stay in Ephesus? He had an open door for ministry. They wanted to hear him. Why didn't he stay? Why did he go back to Jerusalem? Well, I'm not sure, and the text doesn't say. Maybe... Maybe he wanted to have a good relationship with his home-sending church, Antioch, and it's been three years since he's been there, and he wants to go and visit them. When our outreach partners come to the States, uh, we hope and look forward to them coming to visit us. Actually, it's part of our responsibility to ensure that the work that they're doing, that they're diligently pursuing the work that they're doing, that we're praying and supporting them to do. So we're always glad to have them with us. Maybe that's Paul's mentality, I need to go and report to the brothers and sisters in Antioch, possibly. I wonder, though, if it has something to do with this vow that he makes in verse 18, this very strange element in the text. I think this is utterly fascinating. Some of you might not. That's okay. All right, here we go. Look what it says. Verse 18, towards the end, before he sailed, he had his hair cut off. That's not why I find it fascinating. He had his hair cut off, handsome guy, at Sencri because of a vow he had taken. A vow. What is this? Well, um, we're, we're not very familiar with vows in our culture. Um, we exchange wedding vows, but they're not even the same as vows in the Bible are. In the Bible, a vow was a promise that you make, and you make it with, with the intention that if you don't keep the promise that there'll be a penalty involved. Um, And vows are regulated, they're prescribed in the Old Testament. And uh, the most famous vow, perhaps it's made, that we know of in the Old Testament and how it's prescribed is the Nazarite vow. Do you remember the Nazarite vow? Samson took a Nazarite vow. Actually, he was a lifelong Nazarite. Samuel was probably a lifelong Nazarite. Um, John the Baptist may have taken a Nazarite vow, a lifelong one. Well, look, look with me at how the Bible prescribes these. And I want you to turn back with me to the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 6. And we're going to look at a Nazarite vow and what it entails. I wrote the page number down on that yellow sheet if you want to follow along in, your, in the Pew Bibles. We're going to read a few verses from, uh, from Numbers chapter 6. Now, don't confuse as we look at this Nazarite with the fact that the Bible says that Jesus is a Nazarene. That's different. If you are a Nazarene, it means you're from Nazareth. If you're a Nazarite, it means you took a vow. Oh, my goodness. Here we go. Numbers chapter 6, verse 1. The Lord said to, the Mo- uh, to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, If a man or woman wants to make a special vow, a vow of dedication to the Lord as a Nazarite, they must abstain from wine and other fermented drink and must not drink vinegar made from wine or other fermented drink. They must not drink grape juice or eat grapes or raisins. <laughs> no produce the juice metaphors from Paul. As long as they remain under their Nazarite vow, they must not eat anything that comes from the grapevine, not even the seeds or skins. Verse 5, during the entire period of their Nazarite vow, no razor may be used on their head. They must be holy until the period of their dedication to the Lord is over. They must let their hair and then consequently their beards, I would think, grow long. Now, This detail about the Nazarite vow makes me think that maybe in Paul, that's the type of vow that Paul, in Acts, sorry, that Paul had taken because he cut his hair. Now, why? He cut his hair because of the vow. Either it was his last haircut before the vow, 
or it was his, the vow is over and it's his first haircut after the vow. I don't know. Uh, verse 6. Throughout the period of their dedication, the Lord, the Nazarite, must not go near a dead body. Now, what do they do at the end of their Nazarite vow? Verse 13. Look at verse 13 here. This is the law of the Nazarite when the period of their dedication is over. They are to be brought to the entrance to the tent of meeting. They are to present their offerings to the Lord, a year-old male lamb without defect for a burnt offering, a year-old ewe lamb without defect for a sin offering, a ram without defect for a fellowship offering, together with their grain offerings and drink offerings, and a basket of bread made with the finest flour and without yeast, thick loaves with olive oil mixed in, and thin loaves brushed with olive oil. All right, so there's the requirements for a Nazarite vow. Is that the type of vow that Paul had taken? I think this detail about the haircutting seems to indicate it was, although some people think it was a different type of vow that he took. Now, why did Paul take this vow? Um, well, before I answer that question, what, maybe Paul needed to get back to Jerusalem because he had to finish his vow, and you had to finish your vow by offering sacrifices in the temple. So maybe he wanted to leave Ephesus. I can't stay in Ephesus. I've got a vow to fulfill. I've got to go back to Jerusalem. That, that's a, a possibility. Why did he take this vow? Maybe it was a vow of thanksgiving, because God had delivered him in Corinth. Remember the promise? God had appeared to him in a vision in Corinth and said, no harm will come to you. And Paul said, if no, vow, if no harm comes to me, then I will do this. He's making a vow of thanksgiving to God for the fact that, that no harm came to him in Corinth while he was there for his 18 months. Maybe it was a vow of protection for travel for the rest of the way. Uh, if the Lord will deliver me and keep me safe, then I will. Some, something like that. I don't know. Well, there's something else that maybe I mentioned that it might have caught some of you. I think this is very interesting. It might have caught some of you. Paul takes a vow, and if this is a Nazarite vow, at the end of the Nazarite vow, he has to offer sacrifices in the temple, which ought to raise some questions in your mind. The question that ought to raise in your mind is, how could Paul, the great apostle of Christianity, be involved in a sacrifice of blood at the temple? Right? How could that be? How could... Um, now, if you, if you wonder about that, you, you think maybe Paul, maybe he didn't do that part. Except later in the book of Acts, there's, there's blood sacrifices that are mentioned that he does seem to genuinely participate in. Flip with me just for a minute over to Acts 21. Acts 21. Um, Paul returns to Jerusalem. This is, again, after his third missionary journey. He goes back, and uh, look what happens when he reports to the very conservative Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. Uh, verse 20 of Acts 21. When they heard this, James and the elders of the church in Jerusalem, they praised God. They heard about Paul's ministry, praised God. Then they said to Paul, You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed in Jesus, and all of them are zealous for the law. They're Jews who are followers of Jesus, yet they still follow the Mosaic Law. Uh, they have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or to live according to our standards. What shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come. So do what we tell you. There are four men with us who have made a vow. Take these men, join them, 
in their purification rites and pay their expenses so that they can have their heads shaved uh, to end their vow. Then everyone will know there is no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. As for the Gentile believers, we have written to them our decision that they should abstain from food sacrifice to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. The next day, Paul took the men and purified himself along with them. Then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end and the offering would be made for each of them. How is it that the great Paul, the apostle of Christianity, could enter the temple and be offering sacrifices? Sin offerings, guilt offerings. How can that be? The book of Hebrews is very clear. The book of Hebrews hasn't been written yet in the part of the story we're at. The book of Hebrews is very clear that Jesus is the one sin offering, the one guilt offering for us. How can Paul be making sin offerings in the temple if he's a follower of Jesus? Would this not contradict his theology a little bit? Why is he offering an animal if, as the book of Hebrews says, the blood of bulls and goats can never cleanse us from sin? Why is he doing that? It's very puzzling. I don't have a great answer to that question. Here's maybe one of my suggestions. Do you remember when we read the book of Leviticus? um, we, we, We studied the book of Leviticus. We talked about how when God moved in with the nation of Israel, he moved into the tabernacle. He had his own house in in the city, in the tent city, as they traveled around, that there, there was God's house. And because God has moved into the neighborhood, it requires certain special things. Uh, You put sunscreen on in the summer when you go outside to protect you from the heat of the sun, to cover your skin uh, so you don't get skin cancer someday. Uh, When God moves into your neighborhood, what do you do? You cover yourself, metaphorically here, with blood because of God's radiating holiness. And it has to do, those sacrifices in many ways have to do with the fact that God in particular is living here. He's here with us in a special way dwelling. We need the blood covering. I wonder if Paul, because God dwells in the temple, if Paul isn't looking for, on the inside, he knows Christ has, Christ's blood cleanses me from sin, But there is still this issue of external ritual purity that must be cared for because God lives in the temple in a special way. Maybe. It's a suggestion that I have, knowing that the temple has been destroyed. temple's not there anymore. After the temple was destroyed, the book of Hebrews was written. This is God's definitive declaration that the sacrificial system is over. But in the meantime here, Paul participated. Now, I find that very fascinating, something really worthy to think about a a little bit. There's there's more important things in the Bible to think about, but that's very interesting to me. If you don't find it interesting, rest assured that means you're probably normal. Now, here's something that's more important about this vow as as we think about the unfolding story in the book of Acts. This is what I want to think about here in, in the book of Acts, what this vow is. I think this report about this vow is here to tell us that Paul is a devout follower. 
that, that he, there is something real about his spiritual life. See, the book of Acts seems to be at times written to defend Paul. Paul is not a lawbreaker like the Jews say. Paul is not a danger to society like the Romans say. In fact, Paul is a sincere, devout follower. He's a grateful person. He's a dependent man. He had told the Ephesians, I'll come back if it's God's will. That was not just a throwaway line for him. The gospel is not just his sales pitch. It's not uh, uh, something that he, he gives as a party platform. He believes it, and it's evident in his life. There's a warmth to Paul's life. He's a genuine, real follower of Jesus Christ. This reminds me of something that Paul told Timothy. It's, I wrote down the verse from 1 Timothy. He says to Timothy, Let your progress be evident to all. That is, let people see the genuineness of your faith in Jesus, that, that you really love him, that you're really following him, that you're really growing as a follower of Jesus. One of the responsibilities incumbent on you as a spiritual leader is that you are making visible progress as a follower of Jesus Christ. See, the church does not appoint elders because we believe that elders are perfect. We, we appoint elders because we believe that God has called us to uh, recognize these men who are setting the pace for us, who are making evident progress as followers of Jesus Christ. They're there to, to show us what vibrant, a vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ looks like. That's the responsibility that you take up as you teach your Sunday school class. One of the things that is to be true about you as a Sunday school teacher is that there is a sincere, here's an old word, I'll use it anyway, piety about your life. This is a, this is a warning here against the, the sudden fall and the slow drift that can happen away from Jesus. One of my friends in Dallas uh, several years ago told me one Sunday what had happened to him during the week. He, he'd gotten up early on Monday morning, and um, this is actually a new discipline for him. He wanted to take this more seriously in his life. So he got up early Monday morning, and he went down to the kitchen table, and he opened his Bible, and he sat down to read it. And a few minutes after he'd been there, his daughter, Julia, who was three, came downstairs, too, out of her bedroom. And she saw her dad there with his Bible open on the table, and she went without saying anything, and got her picture Bible and came back and sat at the table and opened up and looked at the pictures with him while he read his Bible. That was Monday. Same thing happened on Tuesday and then on Wednesday. Thursday she slept in, but Friday she was there. My friend thought to himself, this is awesome. It's exactly what I want to teach my daughter to do. Then he thought to himself, this is terrible. Because if I miss a day, what's going to happen? What am I teaching her? I want her to know every day, oh, get your Bible and read it. My problem in my house, I read my Bible uh, in, on my computer, my tablet. <laughs> I announce it sometimes. The kids are in the room. I'm reading the Bible. I'm not playing, playing Candy Crush. I'm not on Facebook. I'm reading the Bible. This, this opportunity here is a joy, and it's a little bit of a threat too, huh? right? Read this passage. Think about the pace that you're setting, the pace that you're setting for your growth group or your accountability group or your Sunday school class. 
Let your progress be evident to all. Produce the juice. All right, now number two here, second. Acts describes this church in Ephesus because the, uh, that will produce the ju- juice because it's a congregation that's faithful to uh, the apostles' teaching. It's a congregation that's faithful to the apostles' teaching. Do you remember in Acts chapter 2, here we go on the carousel, Acts chapter 2, the church gathered together, and what did they do? They devoted themselves to prayer, fellowship, um, breaking of bread, and the apostles' teaching. Now, how does that develop in this chapter? Well, we meet a man by the name of Apollos, verse 24. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria. Now, Alexandria is, in the ancient world, a place associated with learning. So if you said to somebody, hey, I'm from Alexandria, they would say, wow, you must be really smart. It's kind of like uh, when I lived in uh, Texas and I would introduce myself and I'd say, hi, my name is Joel. Where are you from, Joel? I'm from New York. And they would say, oh, because <laughs> people in Texas have a certain idea of what it means to be from New York. They had an idea of what I was going to be like. It was not always pleasant driving on Dallas freeways with a New York license plate. Well, um, you're, I'm from Alexandria. Oh, you're from Alexandria. You must be really smart. And actually he was. Apollos was. He was, the text says, a learned man. Um, that word is used to describe both his schooling and his abilities, his rhetorical abilities. He was trained in the ancient arts of rhetoric, the ancient skills of, of speaking. He was a learned man huh, with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. Wow. What else to say about him? He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor. That word great fervor, it, it, your translation might say he was fervent in spirit. Uh, that word fervor means he was boiling. That word literally means boiling. He was exciting. He was dynamic. He was learned. And he taught about Jesus accurately. Wow, it's an amazing guy as he comes onto the stage. It's the first time he shows up in the book of Acts. Uh, and that's actually the only time he shows up in the book of Acts. Um, I like people in the church that are like this. Um, I listen to people in the church. I read their books, people that are like this, who are skilled communicators, who are learned, and who are white hot as they talk about Jesus Christ. I'm thrilled when I get to, to meet or hear about someone who just, you sit there and you marvel at how their brain works and how, how oh my goodness, look at what they see and what they know about Jesus Christ. It's, a, it's amazing. I love to hear them. And what's great is how they're using all of their rhetorical skills and all their, their knowledge to show, oh, Jesus Christ is awesome. He's a wonderful treasure. You should, you should value him and love him. I love to listen to people like that. And Apollos is apparently one of them. Except, oh, except... There's this little problem. Text says, he's taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. Uh-oh. Something's missing here. What, what did Apollos not know? He, he only knew the baptism of John. Some people want to take this gap, and they want to make this gap quite narrow, what, what Apollos didn't know. That what he didn't really know about is he didn't know about Christian baptism. See, John the Baptist had taught a baptism of repentance, a baptism of preparation for the coming of the Messiah. 
Paul's emphasis when it comes to baptism is on the identification with Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection. Two different emphases, repentance and identification with Jesus. So when we have our baptism service in uh, September, I will say, I always say this, even though my prepositions are never in the same order, buried with Christ through baptism into death. Buried with Christ through baptism into death, risen to walk in newness of life. Baptism is our identification with Jesus uh, in his death, burial, and resurrection. That's what it means to be a Christian, that you're identified with Jesus, that you are, as Paul uses his favorite phrase, in Christ. It means being identified with him, united with him, adopted into his family, not being his servant only, but being his friend. We're accepted by God because of our association with him. We're forgiven because of our association with him. We pray in his name. We're seated with him in the heavenly realms. We're joined to him. That's what Christianity is. It's the story of how though we are alienated from God because of our sin, God accepts us through Christ. He took our sin on the cross. He died in our place. And we receive His righteousness by faith and we're able to be reconciled to God because of it. When Kathy and I got married, here's the wonderful, wonderful uh, mystery of the law of economics. All of Kathy's assets became mine and all of my liabilities became hers. Not such a good deal for her, was it? When, when we trust in Christ, we're united to Christ, and all of our liabilities become his. Oh, and he already paid for them. And all of his assets become ours. That's what Christianity is. This emphasis, of if we take this narrowly, that, that emphasis is missing from Apollos' teaching. It's, it, that's important. It's missing. It might be something broader missing in Apollos' understanding. Maybe it's that, that Apollos is ignorant of the entire work of the Holy Spirit itself. He's, he's not just missing the truth about baptism, but about the spiritual baptism of the Holy Spirit. Maybe that happened. Here's, how could this be? Well, let's imagine that Apollos, there he is living in Alexandria, and there's a, a, a faithful friend of his who has gone to Jerusalem for Passover about the year A.D. 33, and he's gone to Passover, and um, he, uh, while he was in the city of Jerusalem, this man named Jesus was crucified, and, uh, and then two days later there were reports about him rising from the dead, and there's these rumors swirling around. And this friend of Apollos, he's in Jerusalem, and he talks to one of the disciples, and hears, uh, and, and, but he hears that Jesus has told them to stick around for 40 days, but he can't stick around for 40 days because he's back in Alexandria. His wife's going to have a baby and he's got to get home. Or his father's really sick and he's got to get home. So before the day of Pentecost, before the Holy Spirit comes, he goes home and he says, Hey, Apollos, you're not going to believe it. The Messiah's come. His name is Jesus. He, he was crucified and rose again. And, and I, it's amazing. And Apollos says, oh, That's amazing. It's all over the Bible. Jesus the Messiah from the Old Testament Scriptures. That makes perfect sense. Can you see how that might be? How he might know about Jesus and be able to teach about him accurately and yet not be familiar with the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Hmm. Maybe. Maybe. Now what happens though? I don't know, but the important part is what happens next in verse 26. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. They're still open to hearing about Jesus there. And Priscilla and Aquila are still there. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, 
They invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. There is a body of teaching from the beginning to which God's people have been committed. There's a body of teaching to which we have been responsible that we need to correct one another in. The body of teaching by which we accept one another, it's the standard by which they committed teachers or they commended teachers to each other. It's how they recognized one another as followers of Jesus Christ. And here, Priscilla and Aquila are bringing Apollos up to speed, up to speed with the apostles' teaching. Now, why is that important? Why is it worth observing in the text? I'll tell you. One of the popular teachings that's going around in our world about the origin of Christianity says that at the beginning, the church was marked by this wide diversity of opinion. There were all kinds of ideas about who Jesus was and what he had done and what he was like, all kinds of various ideas. These teachers don't talk about Christianity, they talk about Christianities, because they say there was just a wide variety of opinion. Dan Brown wrote about this in The Da Vinci Code, that wonderful scholarly book. But actually, actually, Bart Ehrman is a scholar at Duke University who teaches this, talks about early Christianities. He, uh, Bart Ehrman recently wrote a book called How Jesus Became God, because there were so many, he says, Christians who loved Jesus but didn't think he was God's son. It's a wide variety. And the thinking goes that when Constantine became a Christian, he imposed in 325 one doctrine on the church. And that's how ultimately the Bible became the book it is and Jesus became God. That's a very popular idea about the early um, in the early days of Jesus. You will read it in news magazines and you'll hear people talk about Christianity that way. But that interpretation of the story actually doesn't accord with these events at all. We are bound by this body of teaching, and when uh, the apostles or when faithful church members like Aquila and Priscilla heard somebody teaching otherwise, there was a standard to which they called them. There is a body of teaching. We, we receive it. We don't change it. We cherish it, we proclaim it, we uphold it, and we call people to it. That's how a church produces the Jews. All right, number three here. Church members who are willing to serve and lead. This is how a church is going to produce the Jews. Um, I read verse 26 a moment ago, and it focuses our attention again on our friends Priscilla and Aquila. Do you remember them? Aquila's from Pontus. They're tent makers by profession. It's interesting here. We first meet them, and they're refugees from Rome. They've come from Rome, which makes it sound like, I don't know, they're running with, uh, they got three pats and pans and two changes of clothes, and that's all they got, and they show up in Corinth. <laughs> Maybe, but then here in Ephesus, they move to Ephesus, and the church is starting to meet in their home when that eventually happens. Well, apparently they had a little bit more money than it would have first appear. Then when they get back to Rome, the church meets in their house again. So maybe they weren't quite the refugees that they first appear to be. Um, maybe they, they built some pretty good business here. Well, uh, they hear Apollos preach, and they know that something is not quite right. right. So they invite him over to their home, and they begin to teach him. Oh, it's wonderful hospitality, right? Come to my house. Let's help. Let me help. Fidelity to the, the apostles' teaching. Humility on the part of Apollos, right? He's... He's humble enough to, um, to um, 
receive the teaching from them. I wonder, have you noticed here that Priscilla's name is listed first? You notice that? He began to speak boldly in the synagogue when Priscilla and Aquila heard him. Priscilla's name is listed first almost always. Um, Sometimes, uh, there's a couple instances where it's Aquila and Priscilla. Some people speculate that, that in Paul's letter when it says Aquila and Priscilla, it's because Priscilla was standing over his shoulder and said, now make sure you put his name first this time. I don't know. That's the way it would have been normally. Why is Priscilla listed first? Well, I have two ideas about it. One is that some people think that Priscilla is from a, a, noble, a more noble family. We have records of a noble family named the Prisca living in Rome, and maybe Prisca was from that noble family, so she gets listed first because she's of more noble heritage, possibly. Or a better and actually more popular suggestion is that Priscilla is listed first because she's the better Bible teacher than Aquila is. Possible. Either way, look at them, this faithful team. What a wonderful example that they are, isn't it? It's unusual in the New Testament for a ministry team to be married like this. Many of Paul's co-workers were single men. Peter was married, wasn't he? But we don't get the impression that his wife served with him like this. This is a wonderful... You should think about this. Priscilla and Aquila, look at this ministry team. You should be encouraged by this. This should challenge you and it should encourage you. You see a, a couple here partnering together for effective ministry, using their gifts to serve together. Listen to what Kevin Miller wrote. We have people like this in our church, but listen to what Kevin Miller wrote too. Adam and Eve must have had fun working together in the garden. No commutes, no child care, no financial worries. Just the opportunity to be with each other all day and to feel the satisfaction of doing something to give together that neither could do alone. We hunger for this today. Cooperating together, meshing, working like a mountain climbing team, ascending to the peak of our dream, and then holding each other at the end of the day. God has planted this hunger deep within every married couple. It's more than a hunger to create new life. It's a, a third hunger, a hunger to do something significant together. According to God's word, we were joined together to make a difference. We were married for a mission. Marriage expert Dennis Rainey says, one of the missing ingredients of couples today is that they do not have a mission. They do not have a sense of God having called them together to do something as a couple. But often as we begin to feel this basic longing, we don't know what it is. We get the seven-year itch or the 12-year anger or the 18-year blahs. We think... What's wrong with us? Our companionship may not be perfect, but we have each other, and many can add, we have children, so what are we missing? We may be missing one-third of what God created marriage for, serving him together. Counselor James Ophius writes, To try to keep love just for us is to kill it slowly. We are not made just for each other. We are called to a ministry of love to everyone we meet and in all we do. In marriage, Jesus' words hold true. In saving our lives, we lose them, and in losing our lives in love to others, we drink of life more deeply. What about your partnership? Having little children around, there's no little children in this scene here. I don't know what, if Priscilla and Aquila had children, I don't know, but having little children around makes things more challenging, doesn't it? But uh, how can you and your spouse serve together? What can you do together 
using the strengths that you have, that God put you together um, knowing that you had them, how can you use them? Um, mentoring young engaged couples, hosting a growth group, teaching a Sunday school class together, what can you do? It's a question worth pursuing. Now finally here, number four. Number four, produce the juice. The juice is produced by congregations serving other congregations. Congregations serving other congregations. Healthy churches have their eyes outside their own walls. In verse 27, Apollos wants to go to Achaia. Now, Achaia is the province where the city of Corinth is. He wants to go to Corinth. Now, I don't know why he wants to go. The text doesn't tell us. But the church in Ephesus encouraged him to go. They wrote a letter and they sent him. He served well in Ephesus. Maybe he can serve well in Corinth. And when he got there, he he seems to have what sounds like an unstoppable ministry. (laughs) Our church has a history of this, looking outside of our walls. Think about... um, Our most recent experience here was Steve Wilson, right? Steve Wilson graduated from LBC. Uh, He spoke about his desire for full-time ministry, so what did we do? We made him an elder. Then, just to to try him by fire, we made him the chairman of the elder board, right? We ordained him. We sent him out. He's serving in New York. Uh, If you've been around the church for a long time, you might remember the name Drew Fenstermacher. That's going pretty far back. Our church played an important role in the pastorate that Sam Wicker now has in Marietta. It was, it was serving with the men in our, on our elder board that, that really helped Sam as he was thinking about his future in ministry. Uh, we financially support Carl Kasky, who, who uh, pastors a church plant in Neversink, New York. We have eyes outside of our building in cooperation, in in collegiality with other congregations. We're not the only people who are followers of Jesus Christ, and we love other congregations who share the gospel that we do. So this is how a church can produce the juice. Think about how the neglect of these things works, where that leads. What happens in a church where the leaders have no evident spiritual vitality? Or in a church where there's no commitment to the apostles' teaching or no one who will invest in serving and leading and no one with any concern for other congregations. What happens to that church? It it becomes desiccated, dry, weird. Let's not be marbles, right? Let's produce the juice together. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you for your great mercy to us that even in this passage we see the passing of of people in these few verses and yet they're men and women for us to admire and to love and to aspire to be like. Lord, I'm grateful to you for the people in our church who are like Priscilla and Aquila who are um, serving with their spouse humbly, behind the scenes, sometimes up front, yet they're a team and they're a glad team and how happy they are together. I thank you for men and women who are like that and I pray that you would produce couples like that in our church more, more of them. Father, I I thank you for how many ways, in other ways in which our congregation lives out these truths, thinking about other congregations and holding fast the apostles' teaching. We do that by your grace. And we ask that you would keep us persevering in it, 
uh, and correct us in the ways in which we are deficient. We want to be a congregation that thrives, that sets forth the sweet-smelling aroma of the gospel. Do that in us and through us. We are your servants. Jesus is our great Lord. We pray these things together in his name, saying, Amen.